Gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna laugh the child together. Have a real good time together. Welcome back. It's Jokerman Podcast again, and it's me, Evan, and me, Ian, and uh, back in back in the stew from all the way over there on the East Coast once again. It's uh, it's the boys we know and love, Matt and Josh, uh, making your third time joint appearance. Welcome back, fellas. Oh, an absolute pleasure. The pleasure is all ours, and we are uh, you know we're we're moving forward. In the Lou Reed discography, the Lou Reed, uh, uh, you know, uh, oeuvre of works. Uh, but at the same time, we're moving backwards because we are here today, gathered here today to talk about Berlin 2006, not Berlin 1973, but the triumphant, I think would, would be an appropriate uh, descriptor for it, triumphant representation of this wild, rangy album uh, that he put on live there at St. Anne's Warehouse in 2006, which, as I understand it, you two, Matt and Josh, were in the audience together seeing the, one of these fucking shows. Yeah, we actually saw the, we saw the night before. They recorded 15th and 16th for the record and the movie, and we saw it on the 14th. So we saw the opening night at uh, St. Anne's. Was Incredible. he wearing a, a different thing? Because on the cover of the actual record of this, he's wearing a sleeveless garment, and in the in the film, he's just wearing like a red t shirt. Red t shirt it, tucked it's into very, jeans. Yeah, he just looks like he's uh, going to get milk. And on the cover of this, he he looks like ripped, and he's wearing a black sleeveless thing. W- which one was it when you guys saw him? <laughs> He was wearing red, red T-shirt, and I, 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 just, I did some research into this, and I think that this cover photo is actually from the European leg where they took it on the road. I uh-huh. see. It's a, like a Bob Dylan type thing where he, like the back of, uh, what was good the one where, he, good, good as I've been, been to you, you where yeah. he's yeah. like, it looks exactly like that. He actually like, is in the same kind of like outfit even, yeah. and he's like got the guitar and looking kind of swole. That's a good call. It's funny. I don't remember the T-shirt, but I just remember his biceps. A lot of biceps. So yeah. even wearing the red, the more modest red T-shirt, yeah. it was uh, pronounced. He yeah. was looking. Yeah. He was still. Cut. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot like mu- there's a lot of muscle that I that sticks in my head. You know, all these years later, he was in great shape. You know, this was like peak Tai Chi era for him. So like he was he was getting up there and doing it. You know, five six times a week, and uh, and you, you could you could see the energy flowing through him on stage in the motion picture. So <laughs> you could see those biceps. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. Uh, he should have kept. He should have kept that going. It's like a, like nightly kind of uh, a statement. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> the sle- and it's it's kind of funny to imagine if he had been doing this sleeveless. Um, it the the cover doesn't. It it is also a lot like the "Good as I've Been to You" back cover in that famously, infamously, if you know about that at all, you know that it's a completely incongruous uh, image to go with that acoustic collection of folk classics, and in this case, it's. Well, it's Berlin. It's the, it's the album that made heads scratch around the world. Uh, and it's yeah. back. And I mean, and to be Baby. fair, he did wear this getup, you know, when they took the Berlin show on the road. So it's he did. There were Berlin shows where he wore this, uh, this this ensemble that we. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah. means something. It, it means something. It's not a you know not an accident. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean to suggest that there aren't moments on this show and concert uh where the sleeveless blue is is absolutely appropriate and warranted but um you know once the the sweat dries a little bit and then he's still sleeveless playing the kids or whatever right exactly it makes you know it makes some degree of sense i think it's a pretty you know he looks muscular and and fit and stripped down there on the front i think it's a pretty muscular fit and stripped down approach musically Um, yeah i mean i think i think this is like it's really ballsy i know that's a that's a word that like comes to mind like there's just like biceps and muscle and balls and like it was like it was it was a it was a it was intense right um and obviously, like when you think of the record, that you know, I mean, ballsy is not the word that comes to mind from the studio album, um, but it certainly does to me, you know, here and even going back and listening to it. So, like, I think those biceps were out for for an effing reason. Hell yeah! What um, you guys, Matt and Josh, because we, you know, spoke at length about Berlin uh, many moons ago at this point, one of our first episodes um, uh, on the Lou and John series. So I think our takes on the record are are established, but. You guys, just as like Berlin, just Berlin the record right before the show and the movie and all this stuff, representation, has this, where, where has this kind of slotted in Lou's output for you guys? I was asking myself that question earlier today, and I think maybe if I had to make a, you know, I mean, this is a, a rough, I would say it's like the, the Bells, Berlin, and Metal Machine Music are probably my three favorites of the... Oh, wow. Okay. You know, up until 1980. So sure. yeah, Berlin was was huge for me uh, in high school. It was one of my most listened to records by by anyone. Damn. So uh, needless to say, I was uh, extremely excited <laughs> when it, when he brought it back. Yeah. How about for you, Josh? What, what's your history with it? For me, Berlin. It's interesting. It was it was an entry point into Lou's solo career. I think you know into the Velvets had gotten transformer and like, you know, I, I know we all know the reviews of Berlin and what was said, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't know any of that at the time. And I found it like, like a, a nicely like glided path into the rest of Lou's solo career for wow. me. It was like an easy entrance. Again, if you read the reviews, like I think you can approach it differently. I didn't know any of that. And it's melancholy. It's melodic. There's a story. I was just, it was a very early, it was like a gateway drug to leave the Velvets and sort of Transformer, Rock and Roll Animal type of Lou and just like be be sort of shot out into the the rest of his discography for me. So like it, I always have held it um, in high esteem as like a gateway drug. 
that's wild. And I get, and another another thing I would say about it, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but that it was it was a I was thinking about this today too. It was a record when I got into it in high school that I thought would make a great movie. You know, like not mm-hmm. a, not a concert film per se, but you know, it was such a some and it wasn't even the story aspect of it. It was much more the tone of it. Like I was mm. thinking, like when I was whatever seventeen years old, it was that one and Sonic Youth's sister. I thought these <laughs> these would make amazing movies. You know, if you could somehow represent this cinematically um it was there and then you know it becomes a movie all the all these years later very different than the one i had imagined in my head but lo and behold that's so funny that you guys both like had uh, early connections with with berlin because this to like for me at least going into lou like this was one that i kind of had to work backwards to uh and i i kind of struggled with and have struggled with over time because it doesn't it didn't like leap out of the stereo at me the way that, you know, Transformer did when I was first breaking into solo Lou stuff. Um, and it also like wasn't as pleasant of a listen as like Blue Mask, right? Um, or Street Hassle, I think. Not that Street Hassle, Pleasant's probably the wrong way to describe Street Hassle, but you know, it makes it, it made more sense for me. You know, those records just kind of like uh, um, the, did something for me. They scratched an itch in my brain. And Berlin, like it, it, it's, it, 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 it has held me at, at distance at, at arm's length. That's interesting. And, and that makes sense. I think, you know, for me, like more, the most specific is like Caroline says both versions, like mm. those drew me in, like, I think back to like high school, those, like I, I, I fell into those songs or that song in two parts, whatever you want to call it first. And just loved that song before I even, you know, and I sort of like, then I entered Ber- the rest of Berlin um, through that for me. Hell yeah. I think it was the it was the kids for me because that was on the that was on the, the between thought and expression box and that sure. hearing that song sent me out of context it was so you know, <laughs> when, when the kids start start crying it was so shocking I had never really heard anything sonically that um, you know or that like emotionally aggressive in a way it was so in your face and so cynical almost that I was really sort of drawn to it in the way that I was you know probably getting into or, you know, whatever, like, uh, Natural Born Killers was in the theaters when I was getting into it. <laughs> I mean, that was the sort of emotional tone that maybe I was looking for. Um, that and the uh, happy birthday thing at the beginning. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Those sonic uh, stabs that come in are, I think, something that have stood the test of time the best of anything on the record uh, as gestures artistically. And I, I do agree, Josh, with uh, Caroline says, especially that being true of this version and this particular film and performance. Um, I think that like seems to be an extremely potent anchor for the entire piece. But I also have to agree with Ian that I, I don't know that I ever had like a, a direct love of this record, and. I, I think it's more like a uh, an appreciation of the attempt that more, enough times veers into uh, seeing, I think, exactly what the attempt is doing. And, and when it, it does work frequently enough that, like, it, it's not a record that you can just ignore. 
Yeah, it was always something for me that I like admired more than I loved, you know, and, and uh, pretty much anything that Lou ever made either is something I admire or love or both. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, it always, the, the record at least, the 73 record always kind of came down on the admire side of things. And, and yet, I think coming back to it here with this live presentation and just like kind of understanding where he was at in his world, in his life at this moment in time, like... You know, the, the songs on the record, I, I don't know if they're still, like, uh, you know, the absolute biggest bangers for me. Um, you know, the, the Kids is not a real catchy tune, necessarily, <laughs> like Sally Can't Dance or something. Um, but uh, it uh, it is, I, I feel much more bonded to it at this point, uh, because it is just such a remarkable fucking thing for him to do this many years down the line, and to put this band together, right, and put these shows together and get... Julian Schnabel to film the whole thing and to really kind of like reclaim this record from the the pits of fucking hell that it had been left in totally unfairly uh, way back then in 1973. It's like like you were saying, Josh Ballsy, I think is the is is the only only descriptor for it. Do you, not to to turn the mic around? So so Ian and Evan, like you know, Matt and I obviously came into this show already loving this. Uh, and so I think, I mean, honestly, it was an incredible show. It's it, it sort of, on one way, it's unfortunate that, you know, I, I saw the best show of my life that I'm ever going to see so long ago. <laughs> I don't think anything will, will top it. Um, so, I, you know, and, and it, it could have been half as good, and I still probably would have thought the same thing. But do you two feel this presentation is more accessible to you for Berlin or the sort of studio album? Like, does this, you know, because it's more ballsy, because it's like, you know, you you have Anthony and, and Sharon, like whatever it is, does this, do you like it more? Is this easier to enter? I think, I think it is because I think something about the record that what is maybe this is true for you too, Ian, that keeps one at a distance is the sense that it works in Lou Reed's head perfectly, that he understands exactly mm -hmm. what is going on and what the songs are about and what they do to move the the story forward and what the story even is. But at first listen, I think it's like, I can tell there's a story, but I don't know what it is. And I don't know who these people are to each other. And I think watching him perform it, it, while it doesn't necessarily answer any of those questions, it does just come across exactly how much Lou Reed knows the answer to all those questions. And it gives a sense of, uh, welcoming you to kind of i mean just even with the his facial expression his tone his physicality there's more information there to draw from and that really helps these songs i think as a listener to be imagined along with him yeah i i like the sound of this record i think better than the record itself you know it, it's it's a it's a, a baser kind of sound you know like simpler in many ways um but but stronger and rawer type of of feel to it and honestly i think that just like getting this getting this Lou, you know, from like 2006, so he was what, in his 60s, right? At this point, getting that guy to be putting this material across uh, as opposed to, not precocious would be the wrong word for him in 1973 because he was already, you know, in his 30s or whatever, but a younger man, you know, without decades of life and experience and, you know, the actual kind of uh, torture, you know, the, the, the emotional weight behind 
a lot of this material, like the emotional weight that he seems to invest this material with, right? By this point in 2006, that's there, like that, he's been through that. Um, and maybe it's more of just like my own mental kind of take on things than it is like responding to the sound itself, but there's something about that. And just like the way his voice sounds, some of those intonations, you know, that he's got. Um, and especially when you watch, when you watch the movie, you know, uh, and obviously when you would have seen the fucking show live, I, you know, I can't even imagine how much more effective it would have been there, but (laughs) seeing Bob Ezrin in his little coat, (laughs) Berlin (laughs) down the back and seeing Fernando over there on the side and Tony on the drums and you've got the Brooklyn youth choir over there on the side, like it's a really powerful kind of like extraordinary um, you know, uh, graceful kind of way to, to make everything come across. And then you just to add, you have like Sharon and Anthony sitting on stools. Sitting on stools, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that point, Ian, is a good one. And I, I sort of, I mean, Evan, what you said about those two, about the, the tape of the children on the kids and then the happy birthday thing, just as a segue into this, I think those are moments that are especially well-suited for theatricality, you know? And I think that the fact that you know, you get that weird tape in the beginning is this very confident open to like, you know, I mean, you can almost see like the curtain draw back and it says Lou Reed's Berlin. Yeah. Even, it's, it, it, it's so sort of Broadway ready. And yeah. then I think Ian, what you're talking about that, like lose, lose command of the, of the material at this point, his, he doesn't seem immersed in that emotional world. He's sort of, he has this narrative distance to, to the performance that I think gives him, he really has a handle on all these songs and he leans into the theatrical bits in ways that I think are really affecting. And I, the other thing I thought, you know, I mean, I, I think it every time I watch the movie or listen to the record, which is very often, um, is <laughs> <laughs> uh, his, his singing, He's got so many great moments where he just puts his mouth right up to the microphone and he almost just is speaking. Speaks, yeah. Matter of factly. And it reminds me of the, the, in the PBS documentary where he says, you know, when I'm singing, it has to be real. It has to be intimate. And I can't think of any other moments. I mean, his singing is so, he's a really trustworthy narrator in that, you know, in yeah. that regard, he's so with every single word all these years later of this thing that, you know, when, when you get these, so by the time you get to a line like that miserable rotten slut wouldn't turn anyone away, mm. you're trusting him. And, and you know, like nobody would say that if they didn't really mean it. Right. And right. you've got, this, and you've got this sort of older Lou guiding you through this, even if you can't get a handle on exactly who all the characters are or what, you know, where they're at in their arc, you trust the feeling of it, you know, and he's, he's really so, I mean, he's center in the stage and he's center in the, everybody's just sort of orbiting around him in this way that I think, you know, is, is actually an improvement on, on the original record. He's, as much as I love it, I think that there's, you know, Something about and I, and again I can't separate from the fact that we saw the show and it was this kind of emotionally shattering night with one of my closest friends, you know that's why would I want to separate myself from that in my assessment? Yeah, <laughs> you're never going to be one, that. One one other thing I want to add. So I, uh, I I got two I got two parental humble brags. So I just took my uh, my nine year old daughter to see Bob Dylan uh, on the most recent tour. Oh, King's salute! Theater. Hell yeah. Um, 
And I called in a called in some music industry friends and I got myself third row center, right? So here I am with my daughter, who is also a member of the Brooklyn Youth Choir, of course, just to, <laughs> that's, not, that's number two. Incredible. Um, and uh, and so I, I told this to Matt, but you know, I've never, I've seen Bob Dylan as many times as we all have seen Bob Dylan. I've never been that close, right? And seeing, it was the first time I literally could stare at his face while he sang. Mm-hmm. And watching him smile and make all these weird, like just weird facial expressions and the way that he haunts his own songs, right? And he plays around with his intonation and his breath and watching him up there. I was like, you know, uh, obviously it all contains multitudes. And it reminds me very much of even, even on listening to this, you can hear Lou's breathiness. You can hear him like hold back lyrics on timing. You can hear him sort of like play with his own like I don't even know his loudness and his softness or distance from the mic. And like, it very much has a similar vibe to me of watching these two guys like haunt their own songs in the little, the tiniest of details, right? The littlest works, the littlest like breathiness that you add to a lyric or something. It really like, to me, it like, it feels, they feel very, very similar. I mean, I'm I'm obviously biased towards both of these guys, but it it felt uh, like it ran, like there was, it it felt like there was, they, they shared something in the way, the weird way in which they both do that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of moments here where Lou's voice cr- starts to crack, and he's kind of able to he leans into it and uses it. You know, he sort of sings with it. It's like Dylan does that too, where you know, he'll he'll hit what you think is going to be a bum note, but he kind of resolves it and rides. You know, he'll use a what could be an error in his favor, and Lou does that over and over and over again. Totally. In in this in this thing, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, but when Bob Dylan does it, it's not emotional. <laughs> it's not no, like he's. Uh, it's not like it's he's on the verge of tears. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Bob Dylan. If if it is, he he would I, never I was, admit it. Was it was remarkable to watch him smile. Like uh, being that close, he just kept smiling and cackling to himself. Like <laughs> the weirdest moments where like yeah. no one else was laughing. Goodness but... gracious! Uh, at that like <laughs> part where they're kind of trading bass and guitar parts yeah. back and forth or whatever. Uh, there are a lot of those go Fernando go type moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. He's talking, that's, he's talking to Steve Hunter. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You know, just, I, I'm just using that yeah. as a descriptor. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, How many times did you guys see, I, I'm sure we've talked about this on previous episodes when you guys have been on, but how many times did you guys actually see Lou live? I, you only saw him the once, Josh? That's it. That's it for me. Just the one. Okay. Yeah. I saw him. I saw him on the ecstasy tour at the Knitting Factory. Wow! So way back in like two thousand. It was early two thousand. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, that and he did. So that was a, so that was this is resonant because that was the first time I had ever heard Rock Minuet was sure. at that show. Um, and so I had never heard any of the songs on ecstasy, but that one, as you can imagine, was quite striking, especially <laughs> in a, a club with two hundred people. And, you know, he was really only playing ecstasy stuff from the bulk of the show. So sad. Um, and then he did, and he, and he also did the Blue Mask that night, which... Uh, right. He was in good good state of mind that night, clearly. The the version of the Blue Mask that was live was, like, a very different approach. It was not, like, the... Uh, I mean, it would be almost uh, too tall of an order to, for any artist to be asked to perform that version on the yeah. record more than once but uh yeah it's it's telling and interesting that he even did do it and that he was also doing i I think when we talked about um uh 
we talked we talked about ecstasy we kind of made a lot of connections to the blue mask and i think that watching this watching the film of berlin i that was my one of my favorite things was that he pulls rock minuet out and it's such a kind of unlock moment of like uh seeing oh i i can really see very clearly like where that song comes from in the context of berlin which is uh in in the case of bringing it back like why would he bring berlin back and do it in this way i think that that's like one of the most instructive uh examples of why it's because the berlin thing has always been there since it came about and berlin just happens to be the most berlin example obviously being the record itself um but that impulse that style that mode is something that informs basically everything that comes after it. Yeah. I mean, it's and another thing is, you know, as we, as we entered the, the venue that night, I mean, you get a, a hint of it in the film, but they were running the, that instrumental riff to like a possum, like a possum, the, or yeah. well, the beginning. It, it ran on a, it ran on a loop for a, you know, a solid half hour before. Just Damn. like the song itself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just, and, and the, I mean, but the vocals never kicked in. It was just this riff right. over and over and over again. And so I think that there's, and I think actually, I mean, Schnabel was the one that had the idea to do rock minuet as, as part of the thing. Cause what a boss. He, That's such a good yeah, idea. I, um, and I think that, I mean, you're, I was think, thinking the same thing today, Evan, that, that like, there's such a direct connection between, I mean, Ber- Berlin is nothing if not a story about a, a family unit uh, fracturing or, you know, shattering. And then Rock Minuet is just another, you know, much like many of the themes we discussed with the Bells, is another one of these kind of dysfunctional, Oedipal, you know, family disaster songs. Um and, you know, I, I, I got to say, like, as shocked as I was when I heard it at the Knitting Factory in 2000, I was just as shocked that he, that he pulled it out that night at the Berlin show, even though, you know, it made total sense. I was like, all oh, right, this is a this song is the, the son of Berlin in a way. Son of Berlin. <laughs> I, I still never I never would have thought that that's what we were going to get as an encore. No, um, I remember being completely blown away, like just like freaking yeah. out. That's yeah. why. Yeah. And especially the fact that he 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 pulls that out after, like immediately after, just the most tender, beautiful Candy says right. some, with the duet between him and Anoni, and it's like that that duality, like from from Candy says in Rock Minuet, just that like at the drop of a hat, flip of a switch, like that says everything, everything about Lou Reed, the artist, you know. Um, should we, uh, I guess we should like talk about the songs on Berlin, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I mean, so. We can, yeah, sure. A, we, I mean, we're talking about three different things, a record, a, a show, and a film. And They're a film. The same Would it be, uh, out of, uh, the question, Ian, do you think if we shook it up a little bit and just kind of went through everybody's favorite songs on Berlin rather than going from A to B? Sure. Why not? I, I, cause I have a feeling like this is going to be pretty different for everybody. Um, you know, I guess w- just favorite songs like going into it and then favorite songs on this, perf- like of this performance, maybe we could comment upon. I think going into it, the, the kids was probably, you know, favorite is a hard word to use there, but it was, I thought it was the best song on the record. Mm. Um, 
And so it was the kind of, and certainly it was the moment that I was braced for, you know, and it was like, oh, you know, you can't sit down and get ready for that show without thinking, fuck, we're going to hear the kids. Yeah. Um, it's coming, so, coming for you at the end of it. Yeah. yeah. So there's a sense of foreboding. I mean, I, dr- I, I, I love, I dread that song always. Yeah. I, <laughs> I listened to this record today and I was like, I have, I'm going to have to listen to that song. Grit, yeah. grit your teeth um, and bear it. Yeah. But the thing, I mean, but the moment that that night that stuck out to me, which, oh, Josh, but I told you I had a surprise. I found the CD of the actual show that we saw. Oh, wow. wow. That's my handwriting. Yeah. But the moment that night that hit me was when he, and it's funny, we were just talking about the Blue Mask. I, you know, the thing that I, when I saw the Blue Mask performed live was, holy shit, he still plays that crazy guitar solo. Yeah. And when we were at the Berlin show, I was not expecting that massive guitar solo that he takes in Men of Good Fortune. Yeah. Um, which, so to me, that sort of became the highlight of the, certainly the first half of the record. You know, I, I, I've always liked that song, but it was just kind of like, it was part of listening to Berlin. It wasn't necessarily a highlight, but what he does with the guitar on that is such a, it's such a callback to, you know, I heard her call my name, you know, all these sort of wild guitar things that he's done throughout his career came out in that one song. So that kind of, for me, I think was the highlight. Um, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing that he was injecting that, that mood into that song. Um, and then, and when I listen back to the one that we saw the opening night, when it's even more jagged, even more atonal, um, and aggressive. Yeah, I think that that's a great like uh, uh, example of what makes the what makes this presentation of it work uh, as well as it does better than I think the record does for me at least is because yeah, a song like Men of Good Fortune, which you know I, I think is is very much just like a part of the a part of the record on the record. Like it's when I'm making like Lou playlists or like a best of the seventies, you know, kind of thing or whatever, like that would never occur to me as anything to be, you know, I would think of a hundred different songs, but I would think of men of good fortune, you know, um, which is not to say anything, you know, that it's a, a bad song by any means, but it's just like, it's, it, this music all feels like really of the whole piece. You know, when you listen to Berlin, it's, it's tough to, you know, draw out individual pieces in general with a couple exceptions, I would say. Um, but, uh, but yeah, here live, I think you really get the opportunity to appreciate each and every one of these fucking songs for what it is on its own. Uh, whether it's the way that Lou, you know, delivers the vocals, whether it's, you know, the, the backing, uh, from Sharon Jones or the, the youth choir, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, fucking Bob Ezrin doing what doesn't actually, I, I don't think he's actually conducting anything. He's just waving his arms around. Um, but it all, you know, it all kind of, 
comes together. Uh, and yeah, Men of Good Fortune like feels so huge and heavy and, and three-dimensional here. It, uh, I think it stands on its own as a, as a fucking song way more than it does on, you know, on the record. And it's an opportunity for Lou to kind of flex his band leader muscularity, the way he pumps his fist with all the great things that life's got to give. Totally. <laughs> They're following his fist as he pumps it, and it's, you know, he's the one doing the conductor. He's the conductor, exactly. What about you, Josh? I, um, so, you know, I said coming in, it for me on the on the album, it's Carol, both Caroline says, but um, and I will just say that my favorite moment is probably at the on the on the video recording is just the one little it's so cold that Anthony slips in oh, right at the end. It's the yeah. only yeah. thing he's sort of like humming and along the only words he said. So that might be my favorite moment. Um, but for me, oh, Jim, the the oh, Jim on this uh, is like. I like it so much. I like it all again, but like, I like it stands out to me so much more than on the album. Like it's much more of like a, I don't know. It's long, but it feels like a cock rock piece almost. <laughs> um, like in a way that like, I just kind of, I really like, and it sort of like muscles it up as opposed to sort of like keeping the, the sadness a little bit. And so it feels like probably one of the more transformational from album to performance songs that i that i keep coming back to mm -hmm. and and it's one of these eight minute songs that there are some eight minute songs or long songs that feel even longer this one feels it's an eight minute song that feels like four minutes it goes right by absolutely like, yeah it, this record is fucking long um yeah. you know i mean the, the original record is long and the live performance of all of it is longer you know this shit is 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 stretched out uh, but it's such an easy kind of smooth listen. I find this way more uh, the live presentation way more listenable than the the Berlin, you know, 1973 for whatever reason. Maybe it's I'm just like better. It flies, at... by, it flies by. It has a velocity that the original doesn't have. Yeah, yeah. Exa exactly. Absolutely. I definitely have to agree with everybody about Men of Good Fortune, which is, I think, a song that lyrically is kind of like I've always thought is a little anemic and a little bit uh, kind of like, like what? Like it sounds like a first, first draft. The lyrics on this have always to me sounded like, all right, wrote some lyrics where it's like often can do anything, often can do anything at all. Like, all right. But the commitment to just like, no, that's not the first draft. That's the final thing. And just like the biggest, uh, the sort of big, broad swing of like the chorus uh, caught me off guard this time. I was just like, oh, right. Like this song goes yeah. to that level with like yeah. the man of good fortune. It's just like, yeah. all right, well, I guess he had a lot of other songs to write. So why do I keep <laughs> working on that one? Uh, well, wait, I mean, and we know from the light in the attic thing that it's been kicking around in one form or another since 1965. Yeah, exactly. And it kicks so much itself of this music onto that, yeah. <laughs> into this too. It's just kind of kicked around indefinitely. So much of what made up Berlin initially was, you know, right. Velvet's shit. Uh, you know, Oh Jim was Oh Jin, obviously. Right. Caroline says, Men of Good Fortune, it, like, it, you know, Berlin itself, you know, it wasn't a Velvet song necessarily, but, it, you know, it, it existed before Berlin, the record. Um, yeah, and I, so I think that you see the seams a little bit, I think, when you're when you're looking at the original record, because um, it, it, it doesn't all 
flow quite as effortlessly and and smoothly as it might, especially because remember, I mean, the record was supposed to be a double LP, like twenty song rock right. opera, basically. And so this is this is half of that, right? It's all chopped down and kind of compressed as much as possible. Um, well, the other thing is, I mean, the one that I just think stands out to me the most which I basically hinted at already was that Caroline says part two, which is also mm-hmm. one of my favorites on the actual record itself. But here it's like, it, it comes right in the middle basically. And it feels like the sort of center of gravity of everything here. And yeah. I think that it's, I mean, he sounds like he's on the literal edge of tears. Um, and it feels extremely personal and heavy and i think it was michael didario of the lemon twigs who pointed out to me when we were talking about this a long time ago that like the way that he moves in the footage uh he puts his arms above his head and it's very like early glam rock lou like but he's like 50 something in a t-shirt but (laughs) he's moving with like the same spirit of that like mascara wearing Lou Reed of old, which is just such a profound uh, image and just the way he sounds on the way he executes every line on this is like done for maximum emotional impact. And that's not to say that it's hacked, like hack performance. It's just like, he knows exactly what buttons to push to make each line of this just kind of come alive emotionally for himself to the point where it sounds like he's kind of working through that intensity to, to perform it. So, you you know, you know, what's interesting is that if you listen to the, I think it's like the Q and a, he does that that you can listen to the like audience Q and a after the, one of the filmings and that he takes questions um, and somebody asks him the sort of inevitable, like, oh, are, were you bummed this was such a flop question, you know? And he goes off, Evan, on the like, no, what people don't understand is this is the sort of, this is the other side of Transformer. Yeah, this is the, yeah. other, the other side of glam rock, he right. says. And right, so he, right. it was he literally said the words glam rock. And, you know, so if you listen to it, so like, obviously that's on his mind. So I think, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're picking up on the, yeah, I mean, there. when you said yeah. we're talking about um, how do you think it feels, or oh, Jim, like that, there's those things in oh, Jim, those like sort of stabs of horn and that are kind of like, I think it, I've said before that it sounds like, like, like Bowser and like Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> like it sounds, it sounds like sort of like a cartoon, <laughs> like villain theme song. But yeah. uh, th- that's yeah. obviously like super glammy and extra. Um, and it appears right before this, like there is a kind of extended glam uh, that this exists within. Um, and I can't help but think about how between rock minuet and Caroline says here, it, it's so easy to see uh, the Genesis of Lulu. I think yeah. that those are the, yeah. the two poles of Lulu and they appear here in in the early 2000s um this thing of like an extreme identification with a vulnerable female character and also an extreme identification with the opposite this kind of cruel hellscape of masculinity 
And, and, and I, the, the other thing, Evan, that your point makes me think of is he does do that great kind of like raise his arms up above his head thing where he's really, you know, he, he's in his glam body there. But then the other thing that he does is like he's singing with resignation, but he's, remember, he's also kind of like resting his hand on his guitar. Mm. He's not playing it. He's just kind of like, he's just got his wrist kind of flopped over it. And it's this very fey, you know, it's like this sort of after hours glam thing where he's like, he's almost breaking down, you know, think more than just I, but he's yeah, still, yeah. but he's like, he, he's still kind of leaning against the telephone pole late at night. You know, it's a, it's just a, an amazing amalgam of, of sensitivity and, 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 um, and toughness, um, which I think is where, I mean, Lou shows that sensitivity and toughness are really not that different if you, if you wear them right. Um, yeah, if you go out and present them with this level of uh, intent, it's like yeah. we were talking about ballsiness earlier and everything about this, about the original record and especially about re-emphasizing the original record is ballsy, but uh, it's not, it's ballsy in a way that people who lack balls can't even recognize. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just love seeing him like totally boiled down, like totally basic, you know, as as bone simple as he's ever going to be. Just like his actual appearance, right? And you think about like 1973. This was this was rock and roll animal, like dog collar shit. Not that you know he was doing Berlin when he was uh, playing those songs, but like that that's what he was looking like and inhabiting at that moment in time when the record initially came out. And here we are, you know, this many years later, and it feels like he's so much more in tune with what's going on in this story and these characters' lives, right? But he's also just, he's in the red t-shirt tucked into the jeans. He's got his little, like, rimless spectacles, you know? And, like, his ASIC trainers that he's probably been wearing for 10 years at that point. Like, it's it's so, um, everything that, like uh, you think of uh, as a stereotypical image of oh Lou Reed right the rock and roll animal uh, it's all it's all just drained away at this point You're just he drained the with... swamp he did he <laughs> drained his own swamp somebody finally did it the uh, swamp I mean, at the bottom of the anvil or whatever <laughs> he's Lou Reed the, he's Lou Reed the literary elder statesman you know what I mean he's, exactly well he's, he you know it's funny he always there, there's something about this that he reminds me of my Jewish grandmother there's, some, <laughs> there's, like, there's like a sort of like a Long Island New York tri-state area sort of like elderly Jewish grandmother or grandfather yeah. feebleness which is wrapped in toughness too, you know, whatever. Yeah, Absolutely. a feebleness of somebody who like has enough on their mind not to like have to fucking dress like it. Like, yeah. Imagine if he put on if he came out with the dog collar in 2006. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a, a. That would also be cool to be honest, but you know, well, obviously I mean, he, not. He wore some weird. He wore some weird kind of uh, sexually aggressive stuff well into his. His later years, but that's true. Yeah, dog collars had that, fallen by the way. So. That one was uh, was kiboshed by this point. Just to pick up on Ojim one more time, uh, uh, I, I, what I love about this whole record, I think, and Ojim is a great example of it too, is those. Someone said something about the horns at one point, right? But like that that sound, I think that came through so clearly that he started to pursue 
towards the end of his, you know, solo discography, right? Like with Twilight, with Ecstasy, with The Raven, this really kind of like fat, you know, Motown type of band sound. It's still a stripped down muscular, you know, uh, core rock unit. Um, but the brass really kind of... The Sally you know, Can't under- Dance type thing. Yeah, but, you know, yes, but sound, but like done done correctly right done without a wink and a nod and like you know with a with a a meth you know hangover type uh fucking thing um it uh it it just really i don't know i I think this music berlin in particular really benefits from that sound um and oh jim you get these these big flourishes right like the big brassy band sound that are punctuating the song and really upping the drama in a way that you just can't you just can't get it on the record yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, what I was going to say is I think it's, it's a sensibility that he developed later that allowed those sort of over-the-top orchestrations to grow into themselves. Yeah, yes. the Raven. Yeah. I mean, the Raven and all, and very, and on, uh, also all over Ecstasy on Mad, like, there is that kind of comfort level that he has achieved at this point with um, how he does theatrical, which is, like, represented here without like you said, Ian, like without any sort of um, over self-awareness of it, it's, it's, it's just been folded in seamlessly into what he does by this point. It's all natural. Yeah, totally. It, I mean, honestly, I think it took like Berlin, the record, great record, uh, but it, it, it just makes more sense at this point in time. It, it makes more sense sung by this guy. It makes more sense with this sound and this band. It makes more sense presented in this way, right, on stage in front of an adoring audience there in New York City. Um, it, it, uh, it was just, it was way ahead of its time. Uh, three yeah, decades ahead of its time. You're, you're pointing out something that's all valid and is there and hidden in plain sight, but also shouldn't be overlooked, which is that like, and it was sort of like a, very reverent celebratory atmosphere, yes, right? Yes. It was both quiet. Like I remember Matt and I had a flat, we snuck in a flask of whiskey that we had <laughs> under a folding chair. And I remember like being nervous to like take it out and make like clink a chair and make noise. So there was like definitely like a, a reverence in the air, but at the same time, like everyone was there to sort of as excited to celebrate, to receive this album with like, you know, joy and everyone was like super excited to be there which is like somewhat the antithesis of berlin right like absolutely they're just like uh, i don't know i'm just psyched to be there and so like there there are these sort of two dueling things at play that i think you know play out in 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 what you hear and that that makes this very different from the just original work which is just so intense like this there is lightness here in the atmosphere that shines through. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, listening to the record is an alienating experience. I can't say that I listen to Berlin, Berlin, you know, the, the original record, very often, because it just, it, like, doesn't, like, it kind of makes me feel queasy. Like, I don't want to sit there and just listen to literal wailing children <laughs> yeah. in the background. Of, it's really, really effective at that, right? It it absolutely kills uh, what it what it sets out to do, but it like that's not I'm not looking to get down with that on a daily basis. And so yeah, so so being in this uh, you know sacred kind of environment with so many other people who see the same thing in this man in this record, um, and uh, you know the, you bring that light that warmth into the experience of this extremely cold. You know it's, it's cold as Alaska. Um, uh, alienating, you know, kind of record like that, I think is an essential component of why this works so well. And it's just, it's something that never could have happened in any other circumstance. 
No, it, you know, it turns, it turns Berlin into a just put it on record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for where, the, like, for where it's crowd, not. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's not. To for the people with. who are like already filtered by the having to buy a ticket to go to see Lou Reed perform explicitly Berlin, <laughs> this is a put it on moment for a record that has no right to be that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, uh, why it's like, yeah, it's a celebration of itself. Um, I mean, I, I get the sense, though, with this record that it's a record that Lou Reed wrote before he really could make, the, before he could write it. Like, it's made because the feeling to make this record was strong enough to where he he felt, yeah, I'm ready emotionally to do it. I don't know that he was ready as a, a craftsman of his own work to do it in every way. That's why I think it has these kind of holes and like unpolished parts and rough edges. But then, as we said, the years went on and it starts to make perfect sense that like, of course the, that framework, that like emotional framework was always there and it's represented here in a way that you can't deny like that. The emotional core is so strong that the sort of, tinsel and like paper mache of these lyrics it it doesn't really matter because you what you're seeing is like Lou Reed the artist who has he knows these feelings need to go in this order and yeah that's with Lulu I think that it, like you know it's re- it was received similarly with disdain and and confusion because you know unfortunately it was the last thing he ever made but I think Lulu was uh, was also the first. It, it was it was Lou Reed deciding because he had the balls to do so that like I'm doing this now because it doesn't matter if it it's not about being polished enough to do it. It's like yeah. you're never ready. But I wonder what he would have done down the line to see like how he would have incorporated seamlessly what Lulu introduces into you know had he lived a few more decades it's funny i mean what you're just saying evan is is almost like i mean i think the the theme that's emerging here is that lou, yeah lou I matured is yeah he, he matured into somebody who had some perspective on this material and then was able to render it i think we're all agree more effectively in 2006 than he rendered it in 1973 and it makes mm-hmm. me want to uh maybe share i have the the program from the from that night oh yeah and there's a and Lou wrote a little you know the, a, a program note that I think is, is is I think this is the time to share it lay it on us please so because you know, this is him talking about his own thing that you're about to see he says uh, Berlin is a stylized rock paean to life outside the circle the orchestrations filled with the filled with the lyrics of the brokenhearted and willfully disabled. The drifting, tormented addicts of love formalizing their own downfalls in the outskirts of the divided city. From beer hall staccato to the embers of a final sad song, this is an evening to press between the crumbling leaves of fall. Mm. Wow. That doesn't seem like something he would have been able to formulate about Berlin in 1973. You know? Definitely (laughs) not. uh, No, but that's the the fearlessness (laughs) to know that you can't even necessarily like 
maybe you you lack the confidence to fully articulate and advocate for yourself as an artist but Lou Reed is just about like ready or not like I'm doing yeah. this I'm going to do this now I'm going to say it as as well as I can and it's a testament to him that like most people never would allow themselves to yeah. do that right. it's fucking, it's fucking brave yeah absolutely brave. I mean you know to just don't let perfection be the enemy of good and just be like, I got to get this out. I think Lulu, your point, Evan, about Lulu uh, is perfect and spot on. You know, I, I, I actually, surprise, surprise, love Lulu. And I think to your point, it's like it 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 could have started another cycle. And instead yeah. of to formulate it, he's like, just got it needed to be vomited out. And like, it's on us to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. It's us to give him the credit that the emotional truth is as mature as anything ever has been. And that that's been true since Berlin. Yeah. And it, it just says a lot more about you as a critic. If you're going to be the one to be like picking nits about what he does to execute it. When like he's given so much of himself, it's, it's kind of an absurd thing to do to, to say that it should have been done differently. It's kind of crazy that he was able to elicit that reaction, to be honest, because like it feels like, uh, you know, in this day and age, if, if Lulu came out, I, I feel like it would be more warmly received, maybe not like love necessarily, but just the idea of, of people like taking an, like an absolute steaming pile of dog shit on Lou, you know, as an old imminent presence feels so far away. It's almost a credit to that, just like... Berlin offending the sensibilities of the rock critics in 1973 is a credit to the strength and power and ultimate you know success of that record. I think Lulu doing that same thing in 2011 when that you know it it should have been clear right from the jump right that Lulu was going to be just as warmly thought of as Berlin, just as successful and brilliant um, down the road. Um, I think it's a credit to that record that it was able to pull that same thing off in a totally different environment. Yeah, they, they, they were both very effective at eliciting sort of the, the laziest tropes of rock criticism. Exactly. <laughs> Almost like, you know, and, and, and sort of, and it's like the way that people deal with things that are uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, Lulu's a strange sounding record, but it's not strange in the way that people are used to the word strange being applied to music. So I think they just can't digest it. And he's talking about, you know, I mean, well, whatever. We're not. Yeah, doing that we'll get into that. One, but <laughs> yeah, but it, it is. It's an extension of what he's talking about here, which are un, totally, uncompromisingly totally. difficult and yeah. and uncomfortable topics and ideas. And so, like, what's the way to make music about something like that that is comfortable? Are you like, do you want that? Do you really want music about insecurity? and instability to be digestible as right. anything else. Well, I think that's why, like, you know, the, like I was saying a few minutes ago, right? Like I don't listen to Berlin a lot because of how uh, good it is yeah, at what it's trying to think. do, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, if it were more digestible, if it were more pleasant, if it were something that could show up on a fucking, you know, Spotify algorithm playlist, then I would probably you know, have a higher play count on it, but it wouldn't be, 
it wouldn't be what it is, what it, what it should be. You know, well, it's I, like they're, they're, they're diametrically opposite goals. Um, I want to make a little leap there. Cause this, this is a total leap, but it's like, if he did do that and it did make it as digestible and pleasant to listen to as possible while still maintaining like the core themes of uh, social and personal unrest, he would be Steely Dan, which is, <laughs> you know, Steely Dan is like, plagued it's the curse of steely dan is that most people who love steely dan don't see that in it they don't even see they don't see the words for what they are they don't see the ideas for what they are because it's so pleasant and i think that this gets to something about like what people have an issue about with steely dan something that lou reed would never elicit that kind of response from like the steve albini contingent of the world is that like lou reed is never going to make it sound more pleasant at least not for a sustained period of time he's not going to do that to a point that like eclipses the harrowing part i mean steely dan hides the darkness really well like they're no, great no, at that. Be, i mean they're, no, yeah, they're great. in fact geniuses. i enjoy the hell out of watching them hide the darkness lou does n- never hides the darkness he shines a light directly yeah, on exactly, it yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I mean, at, at most he makes it kind of seductive Right, you know, right. There's, there's a there's a seductive quality to most of Berlin. There certainly is to Rocky the title Music. track too. I mean, Berlin itself, yeah. that song is so like that's, romantic. I mean, that, that's what I'm thinking of. Like you sort of you you sort of you enter into that world through that you know sort of misty piano bit at the beginning, mm. and before you know it, you, you know you're on the bed cutting cutting the wrists, Ugh. but. Um, you know, I mean, well, I mean, there's there's the line, right? From 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 the bed to uh, cutting the windpipe in rock minuet to I would cut my legs and tits off as I think of Boris Karloff. You know, like hairy <laughs> circumcision. That's yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm gonna I cut mean, myself in front of you. Yeah, or the blue mask. Blue mask. You know, yeah, yep. um, common a, theme. The nipples of his chest. What was it? Put a pin through the nipples of his chest. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought you were wondering about the line in Rock Manuet where he's just the two horse sucked his nipples till he that came, and came on his feet. Yeah. Oh, so good. That's poetry. He <laughs> thought of the old man as he cut his windpipe. Oh. Right. He's not, not hiding the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to shout out uh, Sad Song, which has always been my favorite. Oh, yeah. Always been my favorite song on Berlin. And, uh, you know, wouldn't you know it, it still is my favorite song on Berlin. Uh, even even in this context, that's the one that like, you know, it's if there's a, if there's a, a piece of music, I think that really does the whole thing in one in one song. Um, it's it's sad song and the way that it like it it shows up there at the beginning right with the the um, yeah. the Brooklyn uh, you know kids choir singing just that you know sad song intro very stately you know ornate severe kind of sound and then so many not hours but minutes later you know at the very end it really kind of it's huge and brassy and like as as loud and and overwhelming as it can be that's um, that's that's what it's all about, man. I'm gonna stop wasting my time. Somebody else would have broken both of her arms. 
that's something that witnessing it live, we'll never get it back from the record. Or right. Even the we haven't, we haven't talked about this too. Josh and I also went to see the, the oh, yeah. film when it showed at Film Forum uh, during its initial run. Lou actually went to film for him and set the volume levels himself in the theater. Nice. So, so it was, it was fucking punishingly Definitely loud. Definitely loud. Yeah, so it's funny. It was like, it was, the whole thing was like, Lou went in and he like did all the sound and he sat and then you get there and it's like, all you did was turn up the volume up as loud. Yeah. <laughs> like he just turned it, was, it to 10. Yeah, I, mean, I, had, I, had a, I had a friend who was working the concession stand and she was like, God, we just hear it all day long. Oh, God. <laughs> it's the loudest movie we've ever played. Hell yeah. yeah. But, you know, but, it, but again, like that was even that, even being in the theater with the full force of Lou's volume wasn't like, you know, that, that sad song at the, at the show was, uh, flabbergasting i can imagine man can you imagine the uh the movie like like the last waltz but it's this and it says this movie is meant to be played (laughs) (laughs) it is you know (laughs) it sounds good loud loud or not at all that's that's the ethos of everything here there's no no high kicks in this one (laughs) but I, i i did think of it there's another there is a parallel which is that scorsese made last waltz on a break from new york new york and schnabel made this on a break from diving bell and the butterfly uh-huh. <laughs> they both took. Yeah, we should to talk about Julian Schnabel just as being. Uh, I, I mean, he's one of my favorite directors. I, I I think he's just one of the few directors who, of course, being an artist, understands how to make a film about artists. His movie at Eternity's Gate is one of my favorite movies. It's like, and and the Basquiat movie is really good too. But this, I, I, I would say that the Basquiat movie is perhaps the movie I've seen the most times in my life. It's great. I, I, and and this movie just the he has a restraint. Um, there are, you know, there is like original filmed footage of um, one actress in particular. I don't know who she is. Uh, she's uh, what's her name? She's in the she's in the Diamond Bell and the Butterfly. Um, well, the, the videos are done by Lola, by his daughter. His daughter. His daughter yeah. yeah. I yeah. do have to say, like, if I'm if I'm going to pick a nit with one thing here, like some of that, some of that, you know, historical reenactment type of stuff. Like I get a little bit of like a history channel type feel yeah. for, for it. And like when you just, I, uh, the like you were saying earlier, Josh, like seeing Bob live from the third row, when you can just see Bob fucking Dylan there and, and stare into his eyes and see his facial expression. Like that's all that you need to, you know, really be dialed into what's going on here. And so with a, with a film like this, right, where you can have beautiful high powered cameras trained on every person up there on stage and just get extraordinary close-ups and stuff when it's focused on the people that are on stage, that's when I'm most like most absolutely dialed in there. Uh, and you know, when, when we're cutting, when we're cutting in this other footage, it's like, this is like slightly yeah. kind of hokey, but and again, uh, you know, that's a, that's a formatting issue too, because in the room, those things were just playing on a curtain behind, right. behind them. So it was, it really was like, I mean, and it was the, the hue is the same as the original Berlin cover, you know, so it kind of gave, it was just an added texture. It, it was way and, less, off- I mean, it would not offensive, yeah. not the right word, but it was, it just, it felt like it was less present. Sure. I think it, I'm sure it worked yeah. way better. And honestly, I'm sure it was designed Right. First and foremost, with the idea of it being experienced live in the room uh, and it ends up making it into the film because, you know, they do the film 
uh, with what they have based on what happened in the room there. But uh, yeah, totally like it seems like something that would have worked much better. Somebody in the Q&A asked Lou about that and he, and he, they do it in a way that's like, they don't talk about Lola Schnabel. They say they were like, you know, Julian Schnabel, like his daughter, like, why did you decide to have his daughter do this? And he like, he's in, it feels like old Lou from the seventies where he just like <laughs> undressed the person in the audience who asked the question. Like, when you ask it like that, like, what do you mean? Like I picked Lola Schnabel cause she's good. Yeah. Uh, Oh, and then after Berlin, you know, after the the sweet, the epic story, we get, uh, like we've talked about already a little bit, Candy Says, Rock Minuet, and Sweet Jane right at the very end, which, like, I get, I totally get sending, sending folks home with a smile on their face, and, like, you're going to go see Lou Reed live, seeing Lou Reed play Sweet Jane, that's, you know, that's fantastic. It does feel a little kind of, like, just kind of at odds with everything that's come before in this show and on this record it wasn't it was it's not necessary i mean you know listen i love that song to death i'm you know it's sweet jane yeah i'm not not gonna gonna say no to it but i feel like after that candy says and that rock minuet like you got all you need yes exactly i i I, i've struggled with it because it's it's such a fun like duh he's gonna play sweet jane at the end of the show kind of moment and at the same time i've wondered what would it have been like to walk out into the streets with just Candy Says and Rock Minuet under your belt and then have to deal with that. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Whatever we would have been doing, Josh, we would have been going to the bar afterwards to sort of unpack what we just saw. We would have had that weight. We would have, we would not have exhaled yet. Whereas Sweet Jane functions as a an exhale that maybe 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 the audience maybe the Berlin audience doesn't deserve. it's it's kind of a it's kind of a cop-out in a way but it also sounds great and it's fun so i don't really have that much and it was you know in the film it's great because they can run the credits over it run the credits yeah absolutely there's that but you know it it definitely it pops the balloon of of misery that's been inflating for you know the, the previous 85 minutes yeah, I do. I do find it, uh, you know, deliciously ironic. I'm li- I'm looking at the Spotify, you know, uh, uh, listing. The Sweet Jane here has yeah, at the very end has five million plays, and nothing else has more than like three hundred thousand. Why though? Just because people search it, it's got to show up on Jane. some sort of playlist or something. You know, it's it. These numbers just kind of uh, they 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 increase themselves uh, based on the way that the service functions. But uh, I I think there's something deliciously ironic about the most heard portion of Lou Reed's live Berlin uh, presentation here from 2006 being fucking <laughs> Sweet Jane. <laughs> One. Uh, one thing I just want to add to wrap it up to, or to wrap the sort of feeling that Matt, Matt called out that stuck with me all these years later. And Matt and I talks about it, talk about it all the time, that line in the, that Lou writes about like crushing between the leaves of fall or something mm. like that. Mm. This was a perfect fall evening in New York city. Oh, in my I memory. can imagine. So and like when that. he said that I could smell the leaves, you know, like leaves. And so it, this I never would have associated a season with this record before. And like, this is now indelibly linked with fall, like just such quintessential New York fall and leaves. And I sort of had it in the air, but that, that written, the moment you read that sitting there, it was like inked for life. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I gotta say, I've always, for whatever fucking reason, and this was true before we saw Berlin on December 14th, 2006, 
and this maybe Ian, this will help clue you in to a little bit of where I'm coming from with my love of this record. I've always kind of found it to be a Christmas record for some reason. Yeah, I see that. It's got this kind of weird, like, you know, it's a dysfunctional family thing. And so that obviously slots right into the holidays for many people, not necessarily, <laughs> you know, my, my holidays growing up were quite pleasant and normal, but, um, but I did find then eventually once the film came out on DVD, there were many, many years where I watched it after everybody else went to sleep. On Christmas, I would stay up and watch Berlin either on Christmas Eve or, or Christmas itself. Oh. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's it's a it's oddly enough, it's a sort of a comfort thing for me. As as bleak as it is, I I I bask in it, um, and I I certainly feel at home in the world of Berlin, um, even though my life is very little like the the life <laughs> described. I hope there's not much uh, there's not much similarity between Matt Crafting and Jim from Berlin. <laughs> no, no, I mean I find <laughs> I find a lot of this stuff. You know, it's the, it's a feeling that I I just uh, I love it there. Fortunately, uh, you know we can we can head back to Berlin anytime we like uh, because of these extraordinary documents, uh, the concert or the film and the record both. Even if. I'm certain both of them pale in comparison to having been in the room. Uh, fuck, seventeen years ago, right, man? Seventeen years and six days. Wild. In uh, in one of the the best impulse buys I've ever done in my entire life is I bought the ginormous autographed poster of by Lou and Julian Schnabel from that show. Oh, I hope you have that framed. I I actually am getting it reframed in a, in a better frame. <laughs> there Hell we yeah. go. That's the stuff. But it's like it's enormous. I mean, it's like six feet tall. I mean, it's it's a giant, and it's just full of Lou face. They had it. They had it in the New York Public Library. Um, yeah. Oh, at the exhibit. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, I've seen that shit. I think it was. I think it was a place. I think it was like a hundred dollars, and it like it was just a big deal. Yeah. It was like a big deal to do, and I. <laughs> And I, and I did it. Well, credit to your younger self for, right. you know, I'm sure $100 back then probably, you know, felt like a pretty hard if, bite. If, but if, I can, if I can humble brag about that here, then I have nowhere else to humble that's brag. Right. That, that, that's right. That's setting yourself up for success is what we call that's that. Right. That's right. That's going, this $100 is going to be a priceless thing uh, right. when it comes to bringing up stuff I own on a podcast. <laughs> that's right. 17 years later. Whatever. <laughs> Uh, well, do we have any uh, any last thoughts on Jim and Caroline and Bob Ezrin our... and the whole crew? I love rock songs even when it's like this. <laughs> That's <laughs> especially when they're like this. Especially, That's right. like especially. This. Well said. Well, thank you both, Matt and Josh, once again. Yeah. Love having you guys come through. This yes, is a this is a fall you, experience. Uh, you know, I, I, we did Street Legal in the fall. We did The Bells last fall, and now we've done this. I guess this is this is like the last day of fall, right? It, winter begins tomorrow, so it's uh, it's a fall uh, routine for us uh, at this yeah. point. So we'll the glories of the crumbling leaves of autumn. There you go. <laughs> Hopefully, we can get you back for a more uh, lighthearted romp next fall, but uh, you know. We'll see what we'll see what the future holds for us. Joker man. In Berlin by the wall. You were five foot ten inches tall. It was very nice. 
candlelight and Dubonnet on ice. We were in a small cafe. You could hear the guitars play. It was very nice. Oh, honey, it was paradise. <laughs>